Turn with me again, if you would, to Judges chapter 13. I had intended to move on to Judges chapter 14 tonight, but uh, I got to thinking about what the Lord told Manoah's wife in the beginning of this chapter. In verse 4, the pre-incarnate Lord in the form of the angel told her, Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing, for lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now the word Nazarite means separate, separate or separated. And what a wonderful thing to be separated by the Lord for the Lord. Every God called child is. The name Samson actually means his service, separated unto his service. And so are we, all believers, separated under the Lord's service. And how marvelous is the thought of the words of Paul who wrote what we read just a moment ago, but it pleased God who separated me, who set me off by boundary from my mother's womb and called me by His grace. And He did so to reveal His Son in me. And that's what makes being separated, such a wonderful thing is that by doing so, he reveals Christ to us. God's placed boundaries around his people and he saved them by his mercy and grace. Now, there are different kinds of Nazarites in the Bible. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But generally speaking, a Nazarite was one who was separated unto the Lord and the vow of a Nazarite was only for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. And what a picture that is, that only the true people of God are separated unto the Lord, by the Lord. And it certainly didn't have anything to do with their work, with their will, or their merit that they were separated and are saved. In Israel, there were basically three categories of men said to have been separated unto the Lord's service. The, the priests prophets, and the Nazarites. Now, the priest office was hereditary. In other words, they must come from the house of Aaron and from the tribe of Levi. And these priests were separated to offer sacrifice unto the Lord, to burn incense, and to bless the people. The prophet's office was not hereditary. God's prophets were each one called individually by God and separated to deliver the people of God the word of the Lord. That's how God spoke in times past through the prophets. But in these last days through the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Nazarites, their, their office was neither hereditary like the priest or by divine call like the prophets. In most cases, <clears throat> it was by their own act or the act of their parents. And in Numbers chapter 6 uh, is where we first hear about the vow of a Nazarite. And that's what I titled this message, The Vow 
of a Nazarite. Any man or woman could separate themselves by the Nazarite's vow. And that word vow, as you know, means promise. They made promises unto the Lord. And Numbers chapter 6 deals with the consecration and the law concerning the Nazarite. And as I just said a moment ago, there were different kinds of Nazarites in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Samuel, the prophet, was a Nazarite. Samuel, God's prophet, was a Nazarite from birth. Samuel remained a Nazarite all the days of his life. As you remember, Hannah, his mother, dedicated him unto the Lord and to the service of God. And he was a Nazarite. In the New Testament, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. But to the majority of people, even the most casual reader of the Bible, the, the most famous Nazarite of all was Samson. And most every young boy uh, has heard the story of Samson's strength, which was thought to lie in the length of his hair. Uh, but in truth, the strength of Samson's uh, Samson lie in the Lord, whom he vowed and consecrated himself and dedicated himself to obey. Accompanied with Samson's great feats of strength, we'll read time and time again that his, these wonderful accomplishments of his strength, we'll read the words, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It was not the hair. It wasn't the abstinence of uh, alcohol or anything else bowed by Samson the Nazarite. It was by the Spirit of God. The only power any of us possess is the power that God gives us. That's what the Lord told Pilate. Pilate said, I've got power. And the Lord said, you don't have any power at all but that which the Lord in heaven give you from above. To those who believe in Christ, it says to them, gave He power to become the sons of God. We have no power. Only but that power that God gives us. We were made willing to, to trust Christ in the day of what? His power. Anyone in Israel could vow the Nazarite vow and they could do so either for a day, they could do so for a week, a year, or for the length of their life. And this was a vow the men and women in Israel made themselves with a couple of exceptions. Manoah's wife here, as we read, was instructed of the Lord to be a Nazarite during the time of her pregnancy. And as I said, Hannah vowed Samuel to be a Nazarite. But Samson and John the Baptist were chosen and appointed by the Lord to be Nazarites before they were born. And in that they're different. And the Lord separated them both into His service for the duration of their life. Now, there's some spiritual lessons for us to learn here. Though the child of God, believers are not Nazarites. They do make a vow to the Lord when they pledge allegiance to Christ. God has separated them by His gospel. They vow not to touch the unclean thing. They separate them selves from all who oppose Christ and His gospel. And for the most part, a Nazarite was a man or a woman that made a personal vow, a personal promise for a limited time. 
This vow the Nazarite made was to kept to be kept precisely according to the law and the precepts that God gave concerning a Nazarite vow. And once the vow was made, God expected it to be kept. Now during the time the person vowed, they were to separate themselves under the Lord. But yet the Bible is very clear on this. It would be better for a man or a woman to make no vow at all than to make a vow that went unkept and unpaid. Deuteronomy 23, 21. Listen to these words. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. In other words, if you promise God something, you, you, you best do what you promise. Ecclesiastes 5.4, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Now, I want you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 6, if you would. We'll spend a little bit of time here. And I, I, I hope and pray that this will be of some uh, help to us. Numbers chapter 6, look at verse 1 with me. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 6. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor or grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at or not near no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord." Now, the duties of a Nazarite are not given here, but it is simply implied that the Nazarite was to show a faithful separation and devotion to God. And during the time of this separation, according to the precepts of God, the law of God, the Nazarite separation was to be expressed in three ways, as we just read. First, not given to strong drink, to drink anything that contained alcohol or any product that derived from alcohol. They were to eat no fruit from a vine. 
Secondly, they were not to cut their hair for the duration of their separation. And thirdly, they were not to have anything to do with the dead. The, the law forbid any in Israel to, devout, to defile themselves by touching the dead. If you were in the field with a guy and he dropped over dead, you, you were defiled. Uh, to touch or be exposed to one who was dead was considered by the law to be made unclean. And even a priest could attend the funeral of an immediate family member, but not a Nazarite. According to verse 6 and 7, we see the Nazarite couldn't make themselves unclean to attend the funeral of their father, mother, brother, or sister because of this vow that they made unto God. And I suppose, even though we're not told, this more than likely included their spouse and any children. The vow of the Nazarite was a strict and serious thing. It very well pictures the law of God. It's, it's unbending, it's inflexible, it's strict. However, it is important to understand that the vow of the Nazarite was a voluntary vow. And I reiterate that because a Nazarite absolutely had nothing, being a Nazarite had absolutely nothing to do with any acceptance from God. Salvation always has, is always and always be, will be of the Lord. The vow of a Nazarite to abstain from alcohol, to refrain from cutting his hair, or pledging to have no contact with the dead, spoke only to the separation and dedication of the Nazarite's life to God. But it did not merit acceptance with God. Nothing that we ourselves do does. If that was the case, we like Cain would bring the best of our works to God and we'd take pride in it and it wouldn't be accepted because God accepts nothing but the, the shedding of blood. If anything, the Nazarite saw that there was no acceptance with God apart from a substitute, a sacrifice, and an offering, as we'll see. The life of a Nazarite was one of separation. It was one of dedication, living in a manner that was different from the rest of the world. And a Nazarite devoted themselves to God. And you know, people today get the idea that these monks that live in monasteries and live separately from the world, observing religious vows somewhat, make themselves more holy by doing so. Uh, men and women's problem is not being separated from the world of sin. Men and women's problem is being separated from the sin within us. Uh, we can never separate ourselves and go anywhere that our desperately wicked and deceitful hearts don't follow. So we can separate ourselves in a, a closet or a monastery or somewhere like that, and the problem's still with us. And that's the sin within. The true believer who does make a vow unto the Lord does so simply out of sense of love, a sense of honor, respect, and worship for the Lord who saved them by His grace. They, don't, they do so because He chose them and He called them and He saved them by His mercy. That's why. 
And even then, they're not motivated by a sense of accomplishment or reward. Their motivation comes from the desire of being pleasing to their Lord and their Savior. I want to be pleasing to my Lord. I fail Him so often. So often. The problem is that in and of ourselves, we always fall and we always fail. Well, do we give up? No. No. A life of Samson the Nazarite very well demonstrates and illustrates the sad truth about falling and failing. No matter how serious we are in our vow to serve God, we always come short of the glory of God. And if a Nazarite had vowed to be a Nazarite for a whole year, and on the 364th day of that year, if they broke their vow, they had to start all over again. That's why believers are saved, are being saved, saved, and, and are always saved as we discussed Sunday because it doesn't have anything to do with what we did. It has everything to do with what Christ did for us. That's why, as we saw Sunday, Peter said, to whom coming? <laughs> we, we came to Christ and we continue to come to Christ. We continue to come because we always fall and we always fail. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot not sin for the simple fact that sin is what we are. And I'll clarify that we don't continue in sin, that grace may, be, that grace may abound. Paul said, God forbid, we don't do that. But we do fail and we fall and only because of the mercy and grace of Christ to those in Christ, will that grace abound. And it always does. It, grace did much more abound. Every single time. Some might say, well, I've not made a voluntary Nazarite vow that must be kept. Well, you may not have. But as professing believers, we vow allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And we, by God's grace, have voluntarily separated ourselves from all which is opposed to Him. We're, as professing Christians, vowed to be not unequally yoked with the Word. Though the Nazarite could not come into contact with one who died, I believe this is a reference in number six to uh, uh, picturing the believer having continual fellowship with the spiritually dead. We know that righteousness and unrighteousness can have no fellowship together. We know that light can have no communion with darkness. God said, come out from among them and be ye separate. God said, touch not the unclean thing and I'll receive you. Friends, this doesn't mean that believers are rude and unsociable. Doesn't mean that at all. Doesn't mean that we... Uh, Stick our nose up at folks thinking that we're better than them. If not by the grace of God, there go you and I. But the child of God should not enter into a long-lasting, friendly, and intimate relationship with the spiritually dead. It'll defile you. In most cases, we won't change their minds. We think we will, but in most cases, we don't. I've seen them change the one that tried to change them. But every true believer has been separated. That's what I'm trying to convey. Been 
consecrated and separated to the gospel by God himself. And it was God's calling that separated every child of God to the service of the gospel in Christ. And we don't take it lightly. Paul said, I'm called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, Romans 1.1. The true believers given up any notion that they can approach God in, by, and through a work, uh, the works of the law, or any righteousness of their own. Our righteousness is what? You know, filthy rags. God won't accept it. Any thought of salvation by any free will doing or work of our own, uh, will do us no good because knowing that it's God who makes us willing in the day of His power, He gets all the glory. We can't do anything. But when it comes to us and our sin, what is uh, done cannot be undone. We, we can be forgiven of our sin, but it can't be taken back. Now God can put it behind His back, and that's the only con salation that any of us have that God doesn't remember our sin it, it is no more in his eyes what then do we why then do we fall and fail so often when what do we do when we do well like the Nazarite we just we have to shave our head <laughs> not literally if we did none of us would have any hair but Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, stay with me, that a woman's hair was a, a glory to her. It was comely and beautiful that her hair was a covering. It was a veil. And uh, the shaving of the head pictures the stripping of men and women's glory and self-righteousness. It's the proof of their broken vows and the stripping of their self-righteous covering. What hope then does a sinner have? Well, we've all broken vows. What's our hope? We look again to Christ. We keep looking to Him. We keep coming to Him. We trust in Him and we start all over again. And every time it's a clean slate. Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind. Forget them. Pressing on to those things that are before us. What's before us? He said, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ. Amen. Within these new hearts God gave us in Christ, there's a desire to be pleasing to Christ. I, I, as often as I fail, deep within my heart, there is a desire to be pleasing to Him. No one is is more uh, mourns over their sin than the one that, that desires to be pleasing to God in Christ. And uh, But like Paul, how to perform that which is good, we, we find not. And we fail time and time and time again. Just like Israel did in the book of Judges, as we've seen, there's... There's no forgiveness apart from an offering to the God of heaven whom we've offended. And this is the amazing thing about our God. We fall and we fail and we fall and we fail and we fall and we fail over and over again. But in Christ, our offering, our sacrifice, our sin 
is put away. It's not remembered by God. And it's not remembered because He forgets easily like we do. It's not remembered because it's not there. All sin, past, present, and future is gone. And we don't justify our, or excuse our sin because of that. We like, like sinners, we drink iniquity like water. And we will not continue in that sin that grace may abound, but we simply look to Christ and live. That's what we do. When we fall, we fail, we, we look to Christ. Look to Christ. Come to Christ. By the deeds of the law, even the Nazarites vowed to keep the law meant nothing because no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Why? Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law or a promise that he makes to God. It's, it comes by the faith of Jesus Christ. It comes by His promise to us. For by the works of the law, no flesh, whether a Nazarite or not, shall be justified. And our flesh cannot keep the law. Matter of fact, God gave us the law to show us just that. The law of God exposes who and what I am. It reveals to you and I that we can't keep God's law and that we need one to keep it for us. There are some needed spiritual lessons found in the study of the Nazarite. You know, when the Nazarite failed, they'd present themselves to the door of the sanctuary. Look at verse 9 here in number 6. On the seventh day, that being the day of completion, the day of rest, the failing Nazarite would shave his head in humility. He had tried and he failed. He couldn't keep his vow. And we all should know something about that. And according to verse 10, on the eighth day, the Nazarite would bring two turtle doves, that's what they're speaking of, or two young pigeons, to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they would be for a sin offering, a burnt offering, and they would make atonement for him. Look at verse 12. The Nazarite brings a lamb for a trespass offering. But that's not all. Verse 14 says, And it was there that for the Nazarite a lamb of the first year was offered for a burnt offering. Secondly, it was there that a ewe lamb on the first year of the first year was offered for a sin offering. And thirdly, a ram was offered for a peace offering with the Lord. Now, who's that picture? To break a vow to God is a serious thing. As we said in the beginning, no vow at all is better than a broken, unpaid vow. But here we find an offering made for trespass, an offering for sin, an offering to make us accepted, an offering to make for peace. And that's not all. Look at verse 15. Along with all these things, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, and waters of unleavened bread anointed with oil, and their meat offering and their drink offerings. And then in verse 16, we see it's the high priest that brought them before the Lord. And the offering was made for the Nazarites, what? acceptance for his sin and to give him peace. All these offerings points to one person, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. They plainly picture and typify Him who's our only acceptance with God and who's the priest that brings the offering of Himself before God. He's the offering. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest that brings it. And we are accepted one way, friends, and that's in Him. He's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of His people in the world. He's the unleavened bread anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. He's the meat offering who offered His broken body in our room instead. It all comes back to Him. It all comes back to Him. The length of the Nazarite's hair before he broke the vow didn't have anything to do with his redemption. There's no confidence or assurance of salvation to be put in the length of the Nazarite's hair. And when the Nazarite shaved his head, according to verse 18, he would take that hair and put it on the fire along with the peace offering. Now what does that mean? Well, that beautifully represents how the believer puts no trust in their works or their merit, but trusts all to Christ as their substitute for sin, as the sacrifice and acceptance of their offering for peace. You see, friend, all our self-righteousness is burned up in our offering of Christ alone. No matter how short his hair was, he was still a Nazarite. He could have just little stubs. He was still a Nazarite. And that's the beauty of God's mercy and grace. No matter how horribly we fail and we fall, the believer's still a believer. He's still a child of God. And in God's sight, we stand alone on the perfect work and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you can't find peace and comfort there, there's no peace and comfort to be found for you. It's just that simple. Our standing before God is not based upon anything we do or don't do, but wholly upon the merits of Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. If my salvation's finished by the finished work of Christ, then I did nothing myself to be saved. It was finished. It was already finished. And if it's finished, there's nothing for me to add to it. And if that is the case, and it is, then my salvation cannot be lost by something that I do or don't do. That's right. Now, I know that there folks have, have problems with that because they say, well, that just gives men license to sin. We don't need a license to sin. We're pretty good at doing it on our own. And that is why I do not want my salvation to be based on anything that I do or offer to God. Because I'll fail every single time. I'll always come up short. Always. All have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. You know, with the redeemed child of God, it's never the person that's defiled. It's His vow of separation that is. And because of that, we can start all over again. We forget those things that are behind us. We don't dwell on them. Oh, it's hard to, and it's hard to forget. Well, you know, I know so many folks that have issues with coming to the Lord because they say, I'm just too big a sinner. The Lord, I see how He can forgive you, but I don't see how He can forgive me. You know what you're saying there? 
You're saying God is not powerful enough and sovereign enough to save you. He can save anybody. He can do anything. He can do what He wills. He has mercy on whom He'll have mercy. Isn't that right? Yes, sir. God can save sinners, and that's what He does. A thousand upon a thousand times, we fall and fail, and He forgives. And it has nothing to do with our vow. It has everything to do with His vow. Our redemption doesn't have anything to do with our success. It has everything to do with His success. Our Lord Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. He drank wine. He touched the dead. He raised the dead. And He Himself died. He was a Nazarene. He was Jesus of Nazareth. But the words Nazarite and Nazarene both come from a word called Nezer. The word Nezer means crown. This is no doubt the significance of the Nazarite's uncut hair. It represents an unblemished crown. Well, in and of ourselves, due to our continued sin, our continual falling and our continual failing, our many failures, we can't wear such a crown. And every time, it has to come off. It has to be shaped. Our Lord Jesus as our great high priest wears a perfect crown of righteousness. Oh, thank you, Lord, for separating yourself into the service of your Father. Thank you for pleasing your Father in your life and in your death so that one unworthy such as I can wear a crown of glory. It's your crown, it's not mine. But it's mine by my union with you, the Lord Jesus. Oh, friends, the Lord Jesus kept His vow as sacrifice and surety and mediator and intercessor. And He alone is the fulfiller of the law. He kept His vow. His crown wasn't tarnished. His glory is never diminished. And He still upholds His vow and He ever lives to make intercession for us. I believe this is the reason that God tells us something about the vow of a Nazarite to encourage us when we do fail and fall to keep coming, to keep looking to Christ. Salvation and forgiveness is in Him. And you and I, as spiritual Nazarites, can never keep our vow. Never. We must shave our heads with no sufficient covering. But it's no longer in shame that we do. We do it to show that we put no trust in our vow, but we put all our trust in Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. And we start all over again. Our failure and sin's not held against us. Christ has paid for all past, present, and future sin. He's our heavenly substitute and He's perfect in every single way. He can never dishonor His vow of redemption for His people. And that's the reason that we get to start over and over again until we leave this sin-cursed world. It's because we vowed to put all our trust in Christ who vowed to put our sin away. And that's why we keep looking to Him. Oh, keep looking to Christ. Keep coming to Him. 
It's in that that we find the true meaning of the vow of the Nazarite. Okay, thank you.